Good afternoon. Welcome to Your American Heritage. My name is Ed Bondarenka, and I am not your fluffy insurrectionist. Producing the show is the guy that answers the phones, warns me commercials are coming, puts the guests online, plays audio clips when required. Derek Stone, the man who makes it happen. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth, Sundays at noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd hosts The Intersection at noon. You should listen to both shows, then listen to Dave Janda, then actually you should listen to Veterans Radio if that appeals to you. And then, you know, on Saturdays, of course, you want to listen to Abolitionist Roundtable in the morning, Trigger Talk at 11, and then Moment of Clarity just before this show, this show, and then stay tuned for my friend Ed Hoffman because, you know, a lot of times we're doing the political stuff and it's just a good calming influence to hear Ed talk about art. And actually, Ed is joining me today, okay? And it's kind of funny. I like to have guests on so I don't do all the talking. And Ed tells me, I don't want to do a lot of talking today. So it's like, neither of us wants to do a lot of talking, but I got a concept I want to get across, okay? Because today's a couple days. Well, first, let's open in prayer. Father, please help us today and in the days to come. It's the holidays. It's celebration of Jesus' birthday. There's a lot of stress going on. Please help everybody through this season to enjoy it to bond with family, not to fight, and just just that all should go well and everybody should enjoy the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So, well, today is a couple of days before Christmas, and I was thinking of doing a replay of an interview that I did with uh, Bill Fetterman a couple of years ago, and uh, we talked about um, St. Nick, and, and uh, actually St. Nicholas we talked about, you know, the, the bishop from Turkey, and then we talked about... Uh, how he became Santa Claus and Santa Claus, and even his helper, uh, Black Pete, who, if you were a bad kid, he might throw you in a bag and sell you in the slave trade to the Muslims so you would keep a penknife. This is the Dutch, you know. Hey, listen to that podcast. Find it on Spotify. It's, it's absolutely amazing things Bill had to say about it. But you wanted that penknife to cut yourself out of the sack if, you know, Black Pete— was selling you off to the slavers. <laughs> and it's, surely, look up Black Pete in the earth. What the heck was his real, his Dutch name? I can't remember it now, but it's, it's got Pete, Zwar Pete or something like that. So um, anyways, and then we talked about Washington crossing the Del Delaware mm -hmm. on Christmas because the theme is we're Americans. We love our liberty so much that uh, we'll cross a freezing river in the middle of the night on Christmas just to kill Christmas. you so we can keep it. You know, and that's what uh, George Washington and his band did. And so you can hear that, too, there. Like I said, it's on Spotify. Well, there's still a battle for liberty going on, and there's a battle for men's souls. Has been. That's part of the political battle. This country's founding was produced on, predicated on, biblical principles, which means spiritual principles is found in the Old and New Testaments. We were never meant to be a theocracy. Don't let anybody tell you that, that you know, we want a theocracy. But, man, if you've got to have a set of principles to build a nation on, you can't be much better than the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so that's what our founding fathers did. So I thought it would be fun today to examine some classic Christmas movies that deal with the influence of Christmas and Christmas themes on the major protagonist. And here with me today to explain the meaning of the word protagonist is the host of Speaking of Art, Ed Hoffman. Ed, what's a protagonist? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Ed, thank you, Ed, and hello everybody again. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. What a season. What a season to be able to gather together and Amen. be on your show, Ed. What's a protagonist? Thank you, thank you very much. Well, you, <laughs> boy, you really set it up right away. I like that. It's like a, like a Greek phalanx going right into me right away. Okay, what is a protagonist? You know... 
what is a hero like and and, and what is a villain and, and 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 so much is predicated on the beginning of a film or a story where we clearly have a villain but all of a sudden you have a period this transition Ooh, of, red, of redemption both. he's the same you guy you've got you know <laughs> And that, and I think, what you were talking about 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 the message that there is always the possibility of renewal. There's always the possibility of salvation, redemption, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in that season right now where, I mean, why everybody have like, oh, I've got my New Year's resolution. Where does all that really come why from? Wait? <laughs> you know, because it's the one time of the year where we're able to stop the recorder, so to speak, and we have it on our time, a little bit. And we have this opportunity to be how we imagine ourselves to be, you know? And I guess the challenge is to maintain that through the rest of the year. But at least we try at this time of the year and open up a little bit more to someone who's serving us maybe in a store or at a restaurant. Or we're a little bit more patient, you know, at a red light when somebody goes, you know, right by us. That's pushing it, but okay. As what happened on my way over here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, it, it is the, this wonderful—for an adult, it's the equivalent of getting a call in the morning when you hear it from your bed and you're in elementary school and you know because a dusting of snow has hit the ground that you've got the day off. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah. And your mother doesn't even need to tell you. You already know, and you can go right back to sleep. You've got the day. We've got the day. We've got the time for renewal, I think, and yeah. self-enhancement. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and well, and you do that so so beautifully here. Well, we're getting actually we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because I want to speak about a Christmas carol later, and that really speaks of mm. repentance and redemption. And you yeah. were talking about the protagonist. I didn't think about that. So there's a protagonist and antagonist, mm. and actually it starts out that the protagonist is typically the guy the story's about, right? Yeah. And so it's usually the good guy, but with Scrooge and and, and you know Ebenezer Scrooge, he starts out as the bad guy and ends up. I, spoiler alert. He becomes the good guy. <laughs> so he's yeah, he's got both roles. It's not often you see that. I never That's thought right. about that. It's quite a literary device. I'll have to yeah. try and use that sometime. No, he's he, he's the hinge person, or she is the hinge person. Yeah. And not always, but very often is the everyman where we insert ourselves into that character, and we wonder, would we be handling this the same way? You know, what yeah, well, we that's be? that's the yeah. interesting thing about watching movies and characters and seeing how would I handle this? How does that handle? How did they handle it? Actually, are there any lessons to be learned? But I would like to take right. calls, but not right now. Can we put off the calls till the second half of the show? Because I got a thought I want to develop here, and I want to run it by you. And um, I want Ed to chime in whenever he feels like talking, because like he said, he doesn't like to talk that. <laughs> a couple of radio show hosts who don't <laughs> want to talk that much. What a disaster. I think the word is forbearance. I'm forbearing. Okay. (laughs) For the benefit of your for the benefit of your wonderful audience. (laughs) You're saving it up for your show. Okay, I can take that. So, anyways, Christmas movies. You know, um, movies like It's a Wonderful Life, The Bishop's Wife. Mm. There's one that's not very well known. I was telling Ed about this a few days ago called Mm. Remember the Night with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Wow! If you get a chance to see this movie, I think it's on Prime free see this movie wow it's it's Mm -hmm. in the movie you see two different people fred mcmurray who's a prosecutor Mm -hmm. district attorney Mm -hmm. and barbara stanwick who's he's prosecuting and he's got her on trial just before christmas and he realizes she's going to go in the slammer 
So he puts up her bail. And then he realizes she's got nowhere to go. And so he says something effective. Well, I'm going back to Indiana. And she says, you're from Indiana. You're a Hoosier and she's a Hoosier. And they were, they actually were raised within like 50 miles of each other in similar circumstances and how one became basically a career criminal and they want a career prosecutor and they take a, it's calls for a road trip. And it's amazing. It's, it's this real contrast between how they, how they come to realize the, the, the changes that were made in their life. And, and there's a time of repentance and renewal in there too. I'm not going to give the whole thing away, but obviously has a happy ending. It's how they get there. It's it's the journey. It's or it's called Remember the Night. Uh, so you might want to look that up. It's Preston Sturgis movie. So I'm surprised it's not more popular than not more well known. You know, maybe a foundational question, Ed. Yeah. Is this, and I, and I know the audience they've thought of this already. Why is it that so many of the classic uh, Christmas oriented films okay not always apparent that it's a christmas film i mean a lot of these films would as you know would be released in the summertime and we sort of think of them as christmas films why is it that so many of these classics came out from like 1945 to about 1948 or so world war ii you talk about a reaction yeah you know you talk you talk about all of a sudden all those gis all those families you know reconstituted and you know, and the American economy coming into sort of like a consumer swing, which it will be for the next 20 years. Uh, and it's just, it's it's wonderful to be able to see that time capsule of America at that time depicted in those, in those films. Because you can see something very similar with the great photographers who are in our, in our urban centers, New York, Chicago, or whatever. They're capturing kind of like a, you know, an America which is, you know, got its mojo, and is now expanding. And you feel that, that incredible confidence. You, do, do you get that kind of a feeling yeah, too, when, you, yeah. when, you, when you see these films? And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, um, coming out of World War II and movies coming out in, in the summer because I just found out a couple days ago, I was actually there was an extra bonus to my copy of Miracle on 34th Street that I've had for years that I just actually found. And uh, that movie, they didn't want to wait. They, they knew they had a winner, and they did not want to yeah. wait till Christmas, right? So they right. put it out in the middle of summer, but they totally, I mean, they got this little image of Santa on the movie poster in the background. They does totally underselling that it has anything to do with Christmas or Thanksgiving. They're trying to make it look like this, you know, comic romance. And the movie yeah. is such a, a hit that unheard of for movies like that. Usually they play two, three weeks, maybe yeah. four weeks, yeah. and then it'll come out a few years later in a re-release -re because they didn't come out on TV like we do now, you know, mm -hmm. or, or mm -hmm. you know, disc or whatever, watch whenever you want, stream right. it. And so uh, that yeah. movie was in the theaters till Christmas. And interestingly enough, you know, it starts out with the Macy's Day Parade. Now I'm not talking about anything I intended to talk about here today so far, except repentance and renewal. But I just discovered that they didn't have a Macy's Day Parade through the war because all the rubber that was going to be used for the balloons was in the war effort. So mm -hmm. just the Macy's mm -hmm. Day Parade was a big thrill because, hey, mm -hmm. the balloons are back. Why? Because the war is over. It, and then, and then and they actually filmed it. Exactly. At that parade. Exactly. Right. And also they, they filmed the whole thing. This is another surprise. They filmed the whole thing 
on the predicate that if Macy and Gimbel both agreed after the movie was filmed that they could show it. So they filmed that whole movie, not knowing if when it's done and they show it to Macy and Gimbel's themselves, because they're a big part in there, they could have said, no, take us out of there. And they both loved it. And the, and we have what we have today. And that's that's quite a movie in itself. And I, I wasn't going to start off with uh, a Miracle on 34th Street. I want to talk starting off about, um, oh, and, and by the way, we're not going to talk about Die Hard. Die Hard, I'll give you, Joe, is a Christmas movie, okay? Because it's set during Christmas. But I want to talk about movies where the theme is one where how Christmas itself, the theme of Christmas, the, the um, I'm lost for a word the here. Thank you. The, what are the, the motivational behavior of Christmas, if that's the way I can put it. I can't think of the right word. Uh, how Christmas influences people to change their behavior. And, um, boy, you know, one movie that I always thought was a Christmas movie is Ben-Hur. And the reason is mm-hmm. it starts at the nativity. And you're like, starts at the nativity? What's that got to do with this story of Ben-Hur? Yeah. But then halfway through the movie, and Derek, there's that clip called Balthazar. Would you play that, please? One of the wise men runs into Ben-Hur on the road when, when Jesus is about, should be about of age, and he's going to explain it here. Forgive me. You're a stranger here. Would you be from Nazareth? Where do you ask? I thought you might be the one, the one that I have come back from my country to find. You'd be about your age. Who? When I find him, I shall know him. Oh, but forgive me. I am Balthazar of Alexandria. I am the guest of Sheikh Ildrin. I don't believe in miracles. But all life is a miracle. Why will you not accept God's judgment? You do not believe in miracles. Yet God once spoke to me out of the darkness, and the star led me to a village called Bethlehem, where I found a newborn child in a manger. And God lived in this child. By now he is a grown man and must be ready to begin his work. And that is why I have returned here, so that I may be at hand when he comes among us. He is near. He saw the sunset this evening, as we did. Perhaps he's standing in a doorway somewhere or on a hilltop. Perhaps he is a shepherd, a merchant, a fisherman. But he lives, and all our lives from now on will carry his mark. There are many paths to God, my son. I hope yours will not be too difficult. Yeah, I'll tell you, Ben-Hur, I saw it at the theaters when I was a kid. When I was like, I, when it came out, my parents took me downtown to the theater, and I'm 70 years old now. So, you know, that was a while, and, and big screen, 
downtown, like a Fox Theater downtown, and uh, pretty impressive. We had the book, and four-hour movie, intermission and everything. And so I, over the years, I saw it on TV, all cut up, two-hour two hour show on Bill Kennedy's Sunday movie, you know, or Rita Bell or something like that, you know, like everything cut out of it. Right. And I never thought much of it after that. That's not as great as I remembered it. And then one night it comes on at 8 o'clock at night on Turner Classic Movies, and my wife and I were, well, let's start to watch this a little bit. starts out in the activity scene and starts going. And four hours later, and I got to get up for work the next morning, four hours later going like, one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. And when, when Balthazar says, you know, a hard road, yeah, Ben-Hur had kind of a hard road, but at the end he ends up at Easter. It's, it's, it's a Christmas movie. It changed his life. You know, it's also, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I've always had an affinity for what are called the epics. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like a high point of the, the epic. And it, it then falls, I think, after Dr. Zhivago in the mid-60s, it's, it begins to taper off and mm -hmm. stuff. And I think later on, much later on with maybe Gladiator, certainly Titanic and Gladiator, mm -hmm. we see the epic coming back from the mid-late 90s. Yeah. Um, What's always attracted to me about a great epic film is the way that they're able to encapsulate a very intimate keystone story in the midst of all the flux and all the change. And I, I've got to believe that for audiences, they picked up on that because it, it really it, it, it's like throwing the seeds very widely around you on the path and it draws you in and you kind of like you almost see your role in it. Because there's just such an environment there that you feel comfortable with. And you don't miss the crucial story. You love the whole big environment and the panoply that's provided. It's, it's Handel's more satisfying. Messiah. Handel's Messiah with the soloist like, in the middle. Exactly. There, exactly. I, I think there's, we see so many small movies. You know, they, they, there's a, a precious message within a small movie. And that gets kind of tiresome. But to be able to find a precious message clearly like a gem with the foil around it of a major epic film, I think is a very special experience. I'll bet that you never forgot that as a, as a child. I'll bet that that was a very pivotal moment to see a film in that environment at that time of the year, that kind of a story. Yeah, I remember, I remember that the, I think it had an effect on my life, tell you the truth. I think it taught me some of the lessons I learned as a youth, to be honest with you. The, 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 Boy, I didn't know I was going to go off on Ben-Hur so much, but he, he gets sold into slavery. You know, mm -hmm. it's pretty mm -hmm. much like Joseph in the Old Testament, you know. Mm -hmm. and But it does make him bitter, unlike Joseph. And it makes him, in a sense, reject God. And he actually, oh, the battle scenes are, are phenomenal. It's just Ben-Hur mm -hmm. as a book. If you watch any older movie or you watch a movie set back in the early 1900s, you will usually see... On the uh, in the library of whoever's speaking, if if you see that, you will see a copy of Ben Hur. It was oh, yes. one yes. of the most popular books ever written. And when they it was it was made into mm -hmm. a movie in 1920 something in black and white silent oh, uh, with uh, Raymond Navarro. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And then yeah. remade, you know, with Charlton Heston, and then remade again recently. And I wouldn't even be able to tell you who it was because I could care less. There is no version other than Charlton Heston's. You know, I, I want to tell you, just as, a, as an aside very quickly, you're talking about Raymond Navarro, who was in the first iteration of Ben-Hur, The Silent, in the 20s. He was a very popular, extremely handsome leading man. I had the opportunity of 
buying a copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Wow. That was given, that was, there was an inscription inside on the flyleaf to Raymond Navarro. This is how it all began. You know, how, where the Christianity, this is where it begins or, 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 or reflects Christianity. Um, to Raymond Navarro, my friend, Ronald Coleman. And wow. I wish that I had, you know, I was probably just getting into the show here. And so I, I got to funnel my assets in this direction. You know, I would love to have gotten that. Because what we were talking about in the previous hour, about what can be more intimate mm-hmm. than having, say, a drawing or a book yeah. that was owned by someone, admired by someone that you admire. That would be it. To Ronald Raymond Coleman. Navarro, my friend, Ronald Coleman. And it was... The meditations and, and so many. It was of written those. in Ronald Coleman's voice too, right? I mean, you can hear Ronald. Oh, Coleman you can say it, you know. Ah, so far, far, but, Raymond yeah. Navarro, my <laughs> my good friend. Ah, oh, how I remember it Perfect. so so well. Perfect, perfectly done, sir. So uh, yeah, and then I wanted to talk about basically two movies that came out within a year of each other, and that is "It's a Wonderful Life," and then the movie "The Bishop's Wife," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I found it kind of interesting that these two movies are so similar and yet so different. They both have a central character who finds himself in difficulty and, and actually financial difficulty because what other difficulty is there these days? Mm-hmm. Um, except maybe your health. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's an angelic visit. And then there's a lesson to be learned. And then there's a resolution to it at the end. A, a An awakening. A a um, yeah, you know, re- a resolution, recognition of, and a change. That's the important mm-hmm. thing: a, a mm-hmm. change of heart and a change of point of view. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, we've got these things that, uh, and exactly, we were talking the other day. Uh, they both had a young George Bailey in them, both involved in snow fights and, and sledding. So there's yep. a. The hilltop yeah. scene has the, the young boy, his name is uh, Bobby Anderson. Mm-hmm. He played George Bailey, and I think he was unnamed in this one, where he's a leader of one of the kids in the snowball fight. Right. And right. and who of all is asked to, you know, wants to be in that snowball fight, but Zuzu. Mm-hmm. Right? Carolyn Grimes. Yeah, and you've interviewed mm-hmm. her before, right? I, I, I interviewed her at a screening of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it was, again, it was about, about 10 years ago at the uh, historic Redford Theater. Uh, there in Detroit. Absolutely. She she was lovely. She and her husband were there and mainly talked about It's a Wonderful Life. And she's Zuzu. And as you say, the last living, you know, major actor mm-hmm. in that film, still living. Uh, but I wish that I had spoken more about The Bishop's Wife because her scene with Cary Grant, you know, on the rug there in the parlor when he's talking with her and it's a biblical story. To me, is one of the great moments mm-hmm. in that film. Let's talk about that after the break. Folks, come on back. We were made to be courageous. We were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. 
standing unafraid. Well, welcome back to Your American Heritage. And uh, joining me is Ed Hoffman of Speaking of Art, which is regularly heard right after this show. And um, we're talking Christmas movies. And Ed was telling us about uh, having met and spoken with and actually introduced at the Redford Theater, Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu. And Zuzu also had a part, a very pivotal part, probably more screen time in A Bishop's Wife than she had in It's a Wonderful Life. And you were telling us about the scene where she was with Cary Grant, who's Dudley. And so, you know, I trust you know the story. I trust you know the story with It's a Wonderful Life. But I want to contrast and compare a couple things here because um, both encompass a man in trouble. They both have a beautiful wife, a visit by an angel, and uh, and then, of course, they have both a young George Bailey and a Zuzu <laughs> in right. them. It's like, this is so odd, you know? Like, how does that happen? But, um, you know, you only the got— the studio system. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely right. They're, <laughs> they're interchangeable. Yeah. Well, in fact, speaking of interchangeable, uh, in A Bishop's Wife, it was Cary Grant was supposed to be the bishop, and David Niven was supposed right. to be the angel. And that's then right. they ended up doing a director change, and he said, no, I want— David Niven to be the angel, Dudley, which is what a name. What are they going to name like Dudley for an angel? You know, it's like, and I want to say something about Dudley here. Let's compare and contrast Clarence and Dudley because of the two of them, Clarence is a human who died and is trying to earn his wings. And he's kind of a bumbler, you know, he's a very innocent soul. Henry Travers was wonderful. Yes, exactly. But he's like even Joseph at the beginning, you know, Joseph? Yes. You know, Joseph at the beginning says, you know, like, oh, that's Clarence. I don't know how this is going to work out, you know, in so many words. And and then you've got Dudley. And Dudley is an angel. Now, he's not, he doesn't have the big wings, but he's earned them. And he's a guy that's been around since the beginning, a real angel. And there's a scene in there where I never, never noticed it before. There's something that happened. I can't even remember what it was. My wife and I were remarking on it where he, I've never seen this Destination Tokyo, nothing like this. Any any of Cary Grant's war movies or nothing. He looked fierce. It just, just radiated the strength and resolution and fierceness like this shall not stand. And it was something that happened on the street that he saw. And I, 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 like I watch the movie, watch for it. It's a great movie. But here's a guy, he's almost jaded. He's been around so long watching human right. beings, and yet he's right. kind of fascinated by humans, but he's sent to help humans. And so we know that uh, we know that George Bailey is in a bind financially. Somebody could go to jail. And it's kind of interesting the way that he's Jimmy Stewart plays him. You know, George Bailey isn't a nice guy at times. He's a very dark character. You know, Uncle Billy, you're going to jail, not me. Or... Uh, you know, uh, uh, do the kids have to play like that? Why do we even have kids right in front of the kids? It's like cringeworthy, you know, like, holy cow. I, in my worst moments as a parent, I don't think ever did that. Uh, I hope my kids don't contradict me because I don't remember it and don't want to. So, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, of course, had been a, a bomber pilot, uh, a hero. He had, he had PTSD. There's no two ways about it. He said as much. You know, he was struggling when he got out of the war. He was a decorated war hero. 25 missions, watching his friends get shot down. Now, I've never heard him mention it, but there is survivor's remorse. You know, we don't know what's going through his mind. He gets out of World War II, 
And now he's looking for a job. And he's playing a guy who's in an economic bind, you know? It's like, how are either one of them going to go? A, that was a big dilemma, by the way. Go ahead. For, for, for the actors who had been established in the 30s. Mm -hmm. They came on the, the new generation, say, from the mid-30s. During the talkies, right? The war happens. And I'm thinking right away of Tyrone Power. Right? Errol Flynn? Errol Flynn does not serve. Oh, I thought he did. John Wayne does not serve. No. John Wayne wanted to wait. I'm thinking too, of Clark waited Gable. Too long, I'm sorry. I'll waited say too Clark long, Gable. And it never came, never came right. to fruition. I think Flynn toyed with the idea, probably not very seriously. Never happened. Uh, most of the British contingent, they, like David Niven and others, they go right into it. Yes. People like John Howard, for instance, from the Philadelphia story. Nobody remembers John Howard. Lost Horizon, for instance. He's the brother who... Does, oh, does not like Shangri-La, yeah, does yeah. not like Paradise. He was in the Navy. He was a naval officer. And I can't remember that if their destroyer was torpedoed. Something happened. There was fire all the way in the water. And he rescues a crewman among the flames as, after the ship has been hit. He was a real hero. Um, as you say, was it um, Jimmy Stewart? Doesn't he retire as a brigadier general? Yes, decades yes. later. I mean, he stays oh, yeah. in. Mm -hmm. You know, the oh, he um, did strategic air, air command and um, yeah. flight um, of the phoenix and all that stuff. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it's interesting about David Niven that he was he was well to do. He came from a well to do family, and he went to Sandhurst, which is like their their West mm -hmm. Point. Mm -hmm. And he graduates, and so he is an officer and a gentleman, and then. Yeah. There's a point where he gets involved in something. Somebody's giving a long lecture about machine guns, and uh, he gets bored, and he basically asks the general who's giving the lecture, he says, can, can you basically speed this up a little bit? I have a date. And it's in subordination. <laughs> he gets arrested and uh, basically sneaks out, and he runs off to America, and he gets different jobs here, and he says, well, I'll, I'll try the screen. And then when World War II broke yeah. out, he went right back, all is forgiven, goes back into the military and becomes trained as a commando. I mean, basically, you know, Navy SEAL type stuff. And then he's involved in, uh, uh, he gets another actor to pretend that he's Monty Montgomery to, to fool, the, fool the Germans at one point and uh, quite the story. And then he did a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, like a lot of the actors did, a lot of the uh, war movies and... Uh, mm -hmm documentaries and the like, you know, why we fight, that kind of stuff. And then he comes out, and he's got to do a job, too. Doug Fairbanks, Jr. Yeah. Also very distinguished yep. with his, basically, PT boats in the Mediterranean. Amazing. Yeah, you know? yeah. He wrote his, his second autobiography, what was it called, A Hell of a War or something like that. It came out in the early 90s. I'll have to look that up. I wasn't you know? aware of that one. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the bishop's wife, Ed, and just there's another thing that could have been in that as far as the casting it was supposed to be Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright. Really? Yes. Oh, not the same movie. Yes. And then, and they, but Teresa Wright is, she is, for me, she's one of the goddesses. I mean, there was nothing she didn't do well. You know, she, Mrs. Lou Gehrig, right, from mm -hmm. Pride of the Yankees and, uh, and from um, uh, The Little Foxes, for instance, but also The Best Years of Our Lives, right after World War II. Absolutely fantastic. But she and Dana Andrews were supposed to, to do it. It didn't work out. And then, as you said, David Nivun was to play Dudley the Angel, and Cary Grant was to play the bishop. Cary didn't want that one. He, he chose the right, the right one. He wanted to be the angel. And but, it uh, worked out better. It worked out. It worked better. out a lot really better. Did. I think this scene you're thinking about, the darkness of his eyes. He, he has eyes like, like, like um, George Clooney has. 
eyes, mm. the darkness, okay. right, under the brow, that when they want to be angry, they can seem fierce. And I think the scene you're thinking about is when the uh, the woman is diverted and the baby carriage goes down yes. the sidewalk. Yes. And he stops it before a truck hits it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, thank you, thank you. Oh, my gosh, thank you. And he gives her a very stern yeah. kind of like, okay, just make sure it doesn't happen again type thing. Yeah. But uh, I wonder if she'll uh, remember him. Because that's the funny thing, thing, too, is that at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, George Bailey remembers Clarence. He's the only yeah, one who does, yeah. the only one who knows there was a Clarence. And yet at right. the end of Bishop's Wife, you know, no, you won't, you won't think of me. You won't know me. And how do you like that? I don't. The, the, you know it's what? I have, a, I have a problem with that. It leaves too. a it leaves it's a hole scrubbed in the story. at the end. It's yeah. scrubbed, and you can see why. And yeah. it makes sense, and it's wonderful, and it's self-effacing. But I've never quite liked that construction at yeah. the end. It's it's awkward because it's like yeah. they can't feel gratitude. They just know yeah. that something happened. Now, to me, it's like if they knew that God had actually, you know, miraculously intervened in their lives, even if only, you know, David Niven, you know, the bishop. And that's something that always threw me. The bishop's wife. I was a Catholic, you know. The bishops don't get married. Loretta what are Young. you talking about? Oh, she was so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. she was. She was. She has a very different face. She's. I don't know that she's a classic beauty, but she's she's beautiful. What's well, it? It's in her eyes. She was. Um, hey, Catherine Williamson was a guest. She comes on about every year. Um, she's the uh, one of the specialists at Bonham's Auction House, and they do a Turner Classic Movies auction once or twice a year of. Hollywood memorabilia and stuff. And I remember uh, just a few years ago, um, and we were talking about this one auction where there's a gorgeous portrait of Loretta Young done in three-quarter view as if she's walking. It's almost like something from the late 18th century by Thomas Lawrence. It's like she's walking by you, turning toward you with those gorgeous big eyes, beautiful landscape and sky behind her. I mean, a really great society-type portrait. And that was one of the pieces that was up for auction. Another one that was on that also pertains to what we're talking about is Miracle on 34th Street um, with um, Maureen O'Hara. Her estate was sold through, I think it was Bonham's. One of the lots in that auction was the set of the complete works of Charles Dickens that we've talked about on this show. The one that came out after Dickens' death in the 1870s. This was the first compilation of all his works various illustrators the one illustrator fred barnard did a christmas carol as well as the others she had that set and that was one of the lots in that auction wow wow you know just a closing thought because we're not getting it <laughs> got closing. time let's go let's well do, let's, let's, it's like a skating scene yeah right in the bishop's wife let's yeah, do our skating, own skating scene exactly. and get get to all the points and i love the scene where Sylvester, and I can't remember mm. his name now, the actor. Doggone, I should have written it down. I've seen him in so many movies. I usually know his oh, yeah. name as soon as I see him. He plays the cab driver, and uh, he's a little bit of comedic relief, but he's a, he's a great guy, yeah. and um, he's driving away, and Sylvester, not Sylvester, excuse me, Dudley, Cary Grant, says to him, and, and we played the clip already when we were yeah. trying to play Balthazar, but he says, uh, Sylvester's children... And his children's children will bless him. You know, it's just like... It's beautifully said. Yeah, Dudley sp- speaks this blessing over Sylvester. It's such an angelic thing to say. It's just just it, wonderful. And bi- so biblical, you know. His children and his children's children will rise up and bless him. And he says it almost breathless in a yes. way. It just is very, very nice. And it's, 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 it's done straight. 
right? Yes. And you accept it as such. It's it's. Do you know what my favorite scene in that film is? And I think anyone in your 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 listening audience knows this if they've seen The Bishop's Wife. There's a scene where the old professor, who's never really who succeeded looks like in Richard life, Dietering. yeah, played by Monty Woolley, who was mm-hmm. an old vaudevillian actor and had a very very good film career, long film career. The man who came to dinner. He, yeah, he play, he's got the beard. Yeah. Burl lives again, sort of like what we were talking about. But you know, he thinks of himself as a failure. He's never been able to write the Roman history that he's wanted to write. All is that why why write a dusty history? The world doesn't need another one of those, right? He kind of like he meets Dudley and Loretta, and he's uh, an atheist. Brings, he's not a believer. He's not a believer. He invites them to his apartment, you know, and they have like a drink. And of course, of more, course, more Dudley, drink. yeah, the, the wine, the wine, the, the wine keeps filling the glasses, right? Keeps and at the end fills the bottle. But you never get drunk. You never, you never get drunk. But it's it, it's almost like you know the the marriage Canaan. I mean, it's it's yes. constantly being replenished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but the professor starts listening to him and realizing that this Dudley is something more than a yeah. regular man. And he comes to And they ask didn't him, meet in Vienna. <laughs> they did not meet in Vienna. But the thing is, he asks him at the end, he said, Dudley, could I ask you a question? He said, will I have time to finish my history mm-hmm. or to write my history? And he says, and Cary Grant says to him in a beautiful tone, he says, Professor, you'll have time. That that, yeah. that brings the tears up to your eyes. Yes, it that does. whole idea. You talk about epiphanies and redemption and all and that. And blessings. He knows he's going to be able to do it. And God knows he does do it. You know, and, and, and one of the one of the gifts that he gives is this coin that he's had, you know, since he was younger. He bought it in some antique shop. It's an old Roman coin, like a gold aureus or whatever it is, right? Now they go for thousands of dollars at auction. Well, or Dudley explains but to him how one, rare that one is. And this particular one is so rare, it can basically pay for the cathedral. Yeah. You know, so it's just one overlapping but it gives, little deed. It adds gives to the another. professor his history. Now right. he can write his, it's not, that's the beauty of it. It's not the financial value of, of this coin, it's the, the meaning it gives to his life. Now he can. Do his life's work. There's there's value right. and worth in work and not just money. You know, in fact, the right. owner of the company I just started for billions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. He just bought the company back and he's come out of retirement. And said, I said, I miss work. There's value in work. That's why I still work to this day. There's value in work. And and so back to the professor, it's it's not this. It's not the financial rewards of this coin. It's like it's the self-identity. It gets to finish his magnum opus, and and Dudley makes that possible for him. Remember what, what Dudley does for Gladys Cooper, who plays Mrs. Hamilton. You know the money bags. Oh, he explains story, to her who's going to withhold the funding right. for the cathedral. All this kind of stuff brings He's her to a place of repentance. Fl- flinty, yes. Rondom type, right? And he's playing the harp of a piece of music that the man she really loved in life, and she has it locked. In a box, on a desk. How do you know that? In the library or the living room. And he's able to get to it. He opens it up just because he's Dudley the angel. And he's playing this beautiful piece on the harp, which is, by the way, cinematography was wonderful, Mm -hmm. showing Cary Grant playing this, right? She hears it from upstairs, and she knows he's there. She's going to come down and make her—as an audience with her. And she's absolutely dumbfounded. And her epiphany that takes place talking to him— so it's just, it, it's a beautiful, quiet, quiet film. It, getting back to what you were saying, though, Ed, with It's a Wonderful Life, 
comparing and contrasting them. Which film means more to you? To and, me, The Bishop's and, Wife. And, and why? I think The Bishop's Wife. It's, it's a more serious film, I think. I mean, I, I like It's a Wonderful Life, and I see something fresh in it all the time. But for deeper meaning, I see The Bishop's Wife. But I'll tell you something I, I think is interesting is mm-hmm. that both men are trying to build something. Okay? Carry, mm-hmm. uh, the the um, bishop, Henry, he wants to build a cathedral. Mm-hmm. But it's an edifice. It's an edifice he wants to build, to build a great thing, you know? is Okay, is that really to God or is that to himself? And Jimmy Stewart, he wants to build stuff. I want to build bridges. I want to build airports. I want to build roads, you know? Right. You know, that's what he wants to do is build stuff. And both of them ask God for guidance. They pray for guidance. And both of them is sent an angel, one a little bit better angel than the other, I think, but they both managed to get the job done. <laughs> and, and I think that the guidance that they find is, we see this in the bishop's wife, it's sort of a socialist message, which makes me cringe a little bit, you know, the little people, but it's a true message. Why are you going to build this big cathedral when there are all these poor people out here to be fed, you know? Couldn't you, and that's, that's the wisdom that comes. Instead of building the big edifice, what influence are you going to have on people's lives? And in mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life, we see the same thing where um, um, George Bailey is brought to the recognition of the influence he has had. He has built people's lives. He's given them, he's seen to it that they live in homes. His influence on his brother saved all those men on that ship. At the end of it, man, teary-eyed here. Mm-hmm. You may have to take over in a second. All his friends. Now, it's not just the, the uh, um, angels um, writing in the book, he who has friends is rich, you know, you know, or his brother saying the richest man in, in uh, uh, all of— um, Pottersville, come on, help me out here. No. Uh, New Bedford, yeah, you know, the richer man. Mm-hmm. It's not wretches, it's not riches, Bedford it's Falls. not wealth. It's it's a sense of having fulfilled a purpose, having done something. He realizes when those people come up, he realizes what he's put into their lives, and they're letting him know it. And the same is true at the end of Bishop's Wife, where Dudley realizes, and, and the lady, the, the, um, uh, the wealthy dowager, she realizes instead of this big you know, cathedral to a husband she never loved, you know, she puts Dudley, not Dudley, excuse me, Henry, the bishop, in charge of her finances, makes him her steward for good works, which puts him back in the small parish that he rose from where all his friends are, gives him his marriage back, you know, which happens to George Bailey at the end, too. All of a sudden, he's got his family. His wife still loves him after he walked out in a huff and got drunk, She's got all his friends praying for him because wives do that. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Go ahead. Well, I think I I think it brings us all right back to where we began. You know, this conversation is about this time of the year, this special space that we have, where we focus on what we do best. And I'm just going to put myself out there and do the best that I can. It's not about the accoutrements that we wrap ourselves or surround ourselves with. Yeah. It's it's about being the person you are with the gifts that you have, and they are great enough to make a difference 
in your immediate circle, the people that you come into contact with day to day, improvements, gradual, um, accumulation, like Ray, Ray Bradbury's big thing about if you want to be a writer, just do a little bit every day. Accumulate. I think both films are about accumulated small acts. Yeah. And I think yes. maybe that's... Instead of something big and grand. And that's the message for us. That I, think. You're, I think you're right. Derek, I just noticed that it's James Gleason we were trying to think of. I oh, love he's... James Gleason in the movies. Derek, yeah. I want to ask you a question here. This is something I want to ask you, besides who James Gleason is. What's the best version of A Christmas Carol in the movies? I would have to say my personal favorite. That This is an animated cartoon done by Disney back in 1983. It was called Mickey's Christmas Carol, oh. and Scrooge McDuck portrayed Ebenezer Scrooge in, in that it was only a half-hour version, but th that's the one I truly enjoyed. I really expected, after hearing your commercials uh, played over the last couple of weeks, that you were going to say Bill Murray and Scrooged. Yeah, that 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 is another one of my favorites, but... But the I thought the the animated Disney version was was really well done. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. So yeah, I, I was hoping we could get in a discussion of which is the better, what are the better versions of a Christmas Carol. And one I wanted to talk about was the Bill Murray version, which mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to tell you, folks, if you haven't seen this, called Scrooged, it's it's a riot, but it really is touching, and it's got the message of realizing where you went wrong and what you need to do about it, one of repentance. And I don't know if we have the time to play that clip. I don't know how long it is. Uh, number seven. Nope, we don't. Okay. So basically Bill Murray's talking to the, the audience. He's a network executive and he's doing this. He's doing this big overdone Christmas thing. You know what I mean? It's international cast, you know, uh, the gymnast Renton and, and everybody else, you know, like from all these nations, capitals, and, and uh, this is going to be the greatest thing. And if you don't yeah. watch it, like the commercial where uh, it's, it's this fear-based commercial, watch it or it could be the end of humanity. You know, <laughs> this guy's a scumbag. And the three, the three ghosts that take him through are just, just it's a toaster. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm encouraging you to see this version of it because he, it's a, it's, it, it sums it up. He, he has, he has the repentance and not just the remorse, but the change of life at the end of it. He's mm -hmm. going to do something different, and he tells the audience. He's looking at the audience and he's telling you what to do. It's, and, you know, he's breaking that wall. So, folks, it's been your American Heritage. Come on back next week. We'll do it again. And uh, join us, Ben Ed, Ed Hoffman of Speaking of Art. Stay tuned for that, too. He's got a good show. I was talking to him about it. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone.